The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome back to Shaken and Stirred. This is Nigel Barker. I'm here with my great friend and pal in the UK, Tom Astor. Hey, buddy. How are you? Very well, thanks. Yeah. Autumn is upon us, but the sun has decided to shine, so we're basking in the relatively, well, we call it hot heat wave of 25 degrees. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but we're, you know, loving, we're having a week of, of the last last gasp of summer, which is great. It's lovely. No, it's about 80 degrees, uh, 25, so high 70s, low 80s, I believe. What are you drinking? My daughter has made me a cocktail this evening, and she doesn't think I'm following the weight loss protocol and exercising enough, so she's decided that my drink, go-to drink, should become a skinny bitch, I think it's known as over <laughs> here. I don't know if it's known as that in America, but it's basically vodka. It's very, very simple. It's not even a cocktail. It's vodka, soda water, and lime. Wow. Okay. So that and, and it's very apparently unfattening or non-fattening. Guess who drinks that all the time? Pamela Rowland, who was a guest on our show. That is her drink of choice. And that is what I drank when she was on the show as well. She swears by it. She says that's the one thing that she can drink and never get a hangover either. Like, I guess it is almost as like the soda water counteracts the vodka. But what so. happened in my case like this evening, because it's late and I've already had dinner and I'm trying to also finish off a very good bottle of Calon Segur 2005. So I'm mixing. <laughs> for once, for the first time on Shaken and Stirred, I am shaking. We are, we're doing both. We'll see what happens. First of all, it's not the first time. And second of all, you're, you're both shaken and stirred right now. Mm. Um, You'll be glad to know that... What are you drinking? I am drinking a Manhattan in celebration of this wonderful city that I live in and feel kind of somewhat... I, I don't want to say saddened by its state because it is getting better, but it has been such a tough, tough year for Manhattan, for New York. And finally, I feel like it's, it's sort of dusting itself off you know, Fashion Week and various events that are happening now that it's fall are beginning to happen in some sort of odd, strange, socially distanced way. And even the bars, like there are still bartenders who are now make mixing drinks. I saw them mixing drinks outside, which is in theory not even legal in New York City. But the rules have changed for the better. And Manhattan, you know, I used Bullet Rye Whiskey, classic. One of my favorites. They also have some great Catskill rye whiskeys up here. I mean, rye whiskey you find all over the States, right? But it's the, the bullet is, is one of the classics for the Manhattan. And it is also made with a sweet vermouth. And it, so it's two ounces of the rye whiskey to one ounce of sweet vermouth to, I like to do three dashes of the Agostura bitters, stirred over ice and then strained. It's simply a classic. It's one of the, the big three. So cheers. Yes, chin chin. I mean, clearly you've had a few already because on one level you're talking about the fact that you live in Manhattan and you want to celebrate Manhattan, forgetting the fact that you actually don't live in Manhattan, you live in upstate New York. Then you're referencing Catskills. You're all over the place, man. Where are you? This is the problem when you work in one place, live in the other, and I love the fact that you're trying to catch me out and trying to be a little tricky bitch. I don't know about a skinny bitch. You're only drinking half your drink right now, clearly. Look, moving swiftly on, Tommy... Snapper, I think we had, it's in time for a little bit of booze news. What have you got? Well, it comes from Blighty, and actually you kind of led me onto it, to be honest. As we've discussed many times, and it's hardly news that a celebrity does an alcoholic beverage, right? But this is Cara Delevingne, England's very own sort of supermodel 
aristocrat, although there's quite, been quite a few supermodel aristocrats in their time. But she's done a Prosecco with her two sisters. So it's rather fab, actually. She's spent their time doing it. She says that her sisters and uh, you know, they used to all get together and drink Prosecco, and it's a bit of a family tradition. And uh, she's actually partnered with a, um, a vineyard in Italy called Fosmarai. And they've created this Prosecco called Della Vita, which actually is the Italian form of Della Vin, which is their name. And actually, Della Vita means for the wine. Her name actually means for the wine. Now, Poppy Delavine, her sister, who's also an actress and a model, it's her writing. She signed the actual bottle and they work together on it. Apparently, it's very dry. It's a very dry Prosecco, which is my kind of thing. And it's going for a very reasonable 20 pounds in the UK, which is about $24 in the US, which is really a very normal price. So I think wish them good luck. I mean, this is a, a new venture for them. I say, it doesn't sound very aristocratic. I mean, champagne maybe, but Prosecco, is, is, does it still have the kudos of being the drink of poor man champagne? I don't know. I mean, is it? Tell that to an Italian count. That's all I can say. I mean, look, yes, I, I hear you. You think about that before you said it, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, again, moving on. Look, I, who knows? I, they, that, they say that it's their drink of choice. I don't know why. Maybe they spent summers in Italy or something like that, and they got into it, and they got into the Prosecco. Either that, or maybe just like you said, they're, they're a bit cheap, like a lot of aristocrats. So they like their Prosecco. Who knows? But either way, it's the first time the three of them have got done something together. Look, we have to move on. So very, very excited. Our guest this week is arguably one of the most beautiful women in the world. And I've probably heard this way too many times at this point, you know, but it's, it's seriously, to be honest, the truth. Uh, you know, being an expert at beauty, I'm really the one to tell you that this is true. Okay, so you have to take my word on it. Because she's also sold millions of records all around the world. She's had 11 Grammy nominations. She is an incredible actress to boot. Of course, I'm talking about... Vanessa Williams. Welcome to Shaken and Stirred. Welcome. Thank you so much. I love being on your show. Such a pleasure. So you are the, the, the consummate professional, Vanessa. We met with um, a friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, Pamela DeVos, Pamela Rowland, the fashion designer, who has also been on Shaken and Stirred. You know, you actually performed at one of her birthday parties when I, was, when, when I met you. And, you know, I've met you through various sort of events through her. And you, you are always just so gracious and on. Is that, is that just uh, your, your way all the time? <laughs> well, I got dragged up on stage for Pamela's party, so I was not planning on that, but uh, I had a blast. And at 57 years old, there's not much that really surprises me. So I'm like enjoying my life. My kids are all out of the house and adults. And, you know, now it's time to kind of do what I want. So it's, um, well, right now there's no travel. I was supposed to be in London right now doing City of Angels at the Garrick, which was going to be the, my West End debut. And I was so looking forward to living in London. And uh, I was there for three months while we rehearsed. And then, of course, COVID happened. So I got shipped back home. But I think it's just time for kind of new beginnings and doing what I want. So I've always been a bit of a, a thrill seeker. And I'm, I'm very optimistic. So I'm always like, OK, what's next? Let's do it. What's going on? Give me more. You and Tom have something in common then. I mean, Tom has also got kids out of the house and is, uh, 
you know, I think about to experiment all kinds of new things, aren't you, Tom? In fact, that's not true. I've got a 19-year-old daughter who reappeared this evening for, for a few hours to... Do you know, and it's funny because they reappear and then, you know, it's very, very, I don't know if you have this, Vanessa, but it's, it's very, you know, it's great. My daughter actually only lives next door, so she's not far away. But when she reappears, it doesn't take long to, for her to get to the point of why she's actually dropped in. It's not just for a wonderful company and just check on me and see how I'm doing. Of course not. <laughs> it's always, it's a little bit of a cash injection there for something, you know. <laughs> Well, my mother, my mother lives next door, so I see her every day. I bring the dogs over. She gives them a slice of cheese. I get her her crossword puzzle from her newspaper, and then I head back home. So you don't get hit her up for a check, then? <laughs> <laughs> no, just just extra alcohol. If I run out, I'll say, "Mom, you have any wine or vodka?" Thank there. goodness, because I was going to say, because I thought it was only my mom who came over asking for money. But anyway, moving <laughs> swiftly on, what are you drinking right now? You, you got a cocktail with you? Well, I've got I've got this beautiful cocktail. So, and I, I obviously have no endorsement, but this is the new Califia limeade ginger. Okay. It's the perfect starter because all you do, I add fresh mint, and then I add fresh lime, and just a hint of like uh, ginger, fresh ginger in it. And then this is uh, this is the vodka that I've been using, which is uh, very fabulous bottle. Yeah, it's 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 Polish, and I love the bottle. I love the bottle. But I've done it with gin, and I've done it with vodka, and it's it's just refreshing, and it's it's my new summer drink. But you know, it, it looks fantastic. You got to enjoy it. Well, yeah, absolutely. Cheers. You know, the funny thing here is is that you know people are always telling me in the business how when you're making a bottle for you know gin bottle or a vodka bottle, they constantly say things like, "Well, women like beautiful bottles," and I'm always sort of like. What are you talking about? What do you? What, why? What do you mean? And I look at the bottle, some, you know, certain bottles, and for me, it's about some some other aspect of the drink. I don't know the historic nature of it or why it's mixed into what cocktail. But I'm always being told they're like, oh no, 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 the bottle is so important. If it looks like a, a fragrance bottle or a perfume, woman will choose a, a, a drink oftentimes by the bottle. And you just endorsed that fact by saying, <laughs> yeah. you were like, I don't know what it's called, but I love the bottle. And it was like, <laughs> I'm like... Can I not say that also, surely the number one rule in making a bottle of something, you know, vodka or gin, is, being, is coming up with a name that everyone can pronounce. I mean... Yes. I mean, tell that to Rothschild, Chateau La, La, Lafitte, um, yes. and the French. The French are quite good at having things no one can pronounce, but everyone wants. So, Vanessa, can I point something out that... The, all the podcasts we've done, you are, and I don't know if Nigel's going to pick up on this, but I've just picked up on it. You are, and this is a mark, I think, of the civilized. You are the first guest we've had on our podcast who has done a podcast from their bar. There we go. I know. <laughs> and, and actually, just to give a little description, because this is clearly a podcast, before we actually sort of started with Vanessa, the lighting was there. I could see she had her ring light. I could see it <laughs> reflecting in the car. So that she got her lighting right. She turned yes. it around only to reveal this great bar, which made both Tom and I actually feel slightly awkward because it's our podcast about drinking and, and you know, whatever, shaken and stirred. I'm in my living room. Tom's in his <laughs> library. And Vanessa's in like a full-on bar with you know, the whole, all the glasses and the drinks behind her and the whole line. Maybe you should be interviewing me. <laughs> We're going to have to change this. I'm going forward, I suddenly realized the error, of, certainly of my ways, and I'm not going to bother with yours, Nice, because there are too many of them to start going to. But 
I'm definitely podcasting with my bar behind me from going forward. This is too good. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to do my next podcast behind the bars, literally. Anyway, <laughs> moving swiftly on. <laughs> yeah, so look, pretty much everybody knows about your, your life in Korea. And I say everybody, obviously not everybody, but you are one of those people where when you agreed to do our podcast, I was very excited. I know you and I was hoping that as a friend you would, you would come on and that was exciting. But I immediately told my mum and my mum was like, oh my God, for Vanessa Williams. I immediately got emails and calls from a lot of my management and people who were like, oh, I've always been a big fan. I've always loved her, love her story. People know you, they love you. They, and, I'm, you know, and I've had a lot of well-known people on the show and it, you have something about you that creates that kind of vibe in people. It's as if they've felt your life a bit. They've, they've kind of lived with you a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I became famous at 20 years old back in 1983. So a lot of people did kind of grow up in terms of seeing me be somewhat of a survivor, you know, being famous as a junior in college, winning Miss America as the first black Miss America, having never really aspired to be a beauty queen, and then trying to make my way of my career that I had initially planned, but having not only being a beauty queen, but a scandalous beauty queen as a title to carry on my back was tremendous. And it took a lot of years and struggles to finally get a chance to show who I really was with my, my talent and, and who I truly was. Again, 83 is a long time ago. You know, I've had women that have come up to me that are, uh, you know, older than my mother. My mother's 80, but, you know, saying I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime and thank you. The gay community saying thank you so much for being so tremendously helpful and courageous through the years from the very beginning. I've had friends that have died of AIDS. I had five people in my first wedding. I had three weddings, but my first wedding that died of AIDS. So I went through that whole initial period of, of that loss and, and then just trying to make it, make it as a recording artist, make it as a, a Broadway performer, make it in television and film. I've always kind of been one of those people that people say, oh, I didn't know she could do that. Oh, I didn't know she could do that. And that gives me my fire. That really fuels my fire because it's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to prove it to you. And that allows, as opposed to having expectation and always disappointing people, I have the opposite. People expect nothing because they assume that there isn't anything there. And I've slowly, all the time, always overextended uh, my expectations. I think, you, you know, it's one of those funny things about anybody who wins a talent competition of any sort. It seems that they immediately, people love to, first of all, poo-poo them, ridicule them, you know, sort of suggest that they were a one-hit wonder the moment they win. Like, well, that was that, you know? It's almost like they're, they're sort of the curse of the winner, almost. And, mm -hmm. you know, even on America's Next Top Model, my show that, you know, we would often talk about how, you know, oftentimes the people who were the most successful, and you look historically, were the ones who didn't win were the ones who mm -hmm. sort of got in the show, had that kind of push, but somehow the winning could bring you down. You know, it could almost <laughs> like label you, you know, it, that was your one thing. And, and I think you've discussed many times, but you know, how you had to sort of fight against the Miss America uh, label. But do you think that the scandal then in some part, shape or form could have been helpful actually? Well, certainly not for my career was not helpful because being taken seriously as anything was an uphill battle for years. Uh, it certainly got me recognition, but I don't think being famous uh, by being scandalous was really, again, an opportunity. This uh, plane going by, uh, an opportunity. So I would say no. 
I would have much preferred to have sang my song, won the pageant, or even not. My junior year, I was supposed to go to London for my junior year abroad. I had my roommate, my all my lodging arrangements, and I was going to be dancing at Pineapple Studios and studying over at the Royal Academy, part of the, our, our program. So I was ready to not win and go off to London that following week. And so my whole plan changed once I won. So I, if I were to do it again, uh, I probably would not do the passion. And I probably, my plan was to graduate from school, go to Yale for their uh, graduate program, and then go to New York and beat the streets and, and, and start in theater like I wanted to. But do you think you would have had the, the spark and the fire? And I, and I not to, I mean, obviously you've just said exactly what you mean, but I, you know, I just thinking so often in life when things just go your way, they, you know, you know, obviously one doesn't know what would have happened or could have happened, right? But you only know what did happen. But when things don't go your way, you have to fight and you have to prove yourself. And you just said too, that you over and over again, people assume you may not be able to do something or you underachieve, but you don't underachieve, you overachieve, you overachieve, you push yourself. You're sort of an old school entertainer and as much as you can do it all, you sing, you dance, you act, you perform, you're the sort of triple quadruple threat in a way. But sometimes if you had, for example, had you not been disqualified, had that not been the situation, you may have gone on, I don't know, to go on to be Miss World or to, to continue. Would you have continued on in the pageant world? I mean, you didn't expect to be a pageant winner in the first place. No, no. I was actually, uh, I had performed all through the year. I was supposed to be in a production of Cyrano de Bergerac, the Shakespeare version playing the orange girl. It was going to be part of a Syracuse stage and the show got canceled. I had April free. They had been, the local pageant had been scouting talent up at the hill. They'd seen me in a couple of productions kept saying, no, 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 I'm not a pageant girl. And then I just said, called my mom. I said, listen, do you think I should do this Syracuse thing? She was like, is there a scholarship money? And I said, yeah. I said, go ahead, do it. So they didn't even show up. I mean, it was one of those things, like I sang a song from performance class. My friend played piano for me. I bought a bathing suit down at our local Syracuse department store, you know, off campus. And then I won. And then I got to the States three months later in New York State in Watertown, which is not even Manhattan. It was Watertown, New York. Wore the same gown, same bathing suit, sang the same song with my same friend playing, won that. And then all of a sudden I was on my way to Atlantic City uh, to compete uh, in Miss America. So I had no intention. I was never one of those pageant girls. So it, it was definitely one of those things that, you know, if you believe in a fate, it was fate because I ended up in that line and I never would have gone on after that had I not won. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt that you, uh, you know, got a pretty good mug on you as well. I mean, you know, not to say that that's the only thing, but your face is so stunning. You are <laughs> such a beautiful woman that I, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, I've been a pageant judge. I, I've judged Miss America, Miss World, Miss USA, on top of being, you know, the judge on America's Next Top Model. And there are very few people who come along who are as startling and stunning as you are. And I can only imagine what it must have been like back then. You know, you have a, a very unusual face. The only other person I know who's similar to you is actually Tyra Banks, who has that very pale eyes. And I would sit next to her. I'm sorry, I'm so pleased you've, you've, you've reverted to face. instead. You used the word mug a minute ago. I mean, like, oh, yeah. mug. <laughs> mug. You've got a really nice mug. It's like you don't need a <laughs> mug shot. You don't ever, no, no, sorry. Just for, anyway, keep up with the face. I carry on, but don't use yes, my I know. I, I, should, I had to rephrase, my, rephrase myself. My Manhattan cocktail is clearly kicking in. Yes. <laughs> but it's funny, we've had lots of 
I say lots. We've had just recently had um, Miss Universe on, shaken and stirred. And, you know, I've certainly met and photographed many of them. There is such a process for all of them. They, they, they live, breathe it. Many of them get involved when they're children and they, you know, it's this lifelong thing. You basically kind of shattered the whole idea of what needs to be done as far as all the planning and preparation. And you just have to have that kind of heart and soul and guts and go for it, right? That sort of gumption. Well, luckily I had the talent. I mean, I had been singing and dancing my whole life. I was like, oh, what am I going to sing? What do I, you know, so I had, and I also had no fear because I didn't want it. I didn't care. I think that kind of having a sense of humor of like, I can't believe I'm here. And you could definitely see the women that had groomed themselves or their mothers or all that stuff to be in the system for so long. And this was their lifelong goal. And there was a group of us handful that had never been there before. It was our first time. And we were clearly having fun because we didn't take it that seriously. We just enjoyed what we were doing and ended up, you know, winning. So I'm so glad that my parents are both educators. Both my parents are music teachers. So achievement was what was valued in our house, not beauty. I was never, oh, there's a little princess. Oh, what a beautiful girl. She, it was always like, wow, nice job. Look at that person. You think you could do that? Wow, excellent. See, if you work harder, you can do that. So it was always about achievement and achievement and achievement. And I did everything. And my parents really were supportive about me being in the arts. I mean, I danced my whole life. I was thinking about being an Alvin Ailey dancer. And then I started to sing. And then I started to do theater and then summer theater and then musical theater and in school. And I was choreographing and stuff. So when I said, I want to major in musical theater, they didn't say, oh, let's get a real job, please. They said, okay, well, if you really want to get a BFA in musical theater, then we will support you. And then once you make your decision to go into the city and try Broadway for real, we'll be here for you. So it's always about education. You mentioned your, your mom. You mentioned you rang your mom up and said, do you think I should do this? And she went, well, is there a, is there a scholarship involved? And it's just, you know, that's a great response because it's like, it's like, well, actually, you know, if there's a sort of function behind the doing it, you know, you can do it. So if there's actually something that'll carry you through. So she obviously knew that whatever was, the experience was going to be, was going to be experience accounted, whatever it was, right? I mean, right. you know, both your parents were very musically minded and kind of encouraged you. And, and obviously, in order to be a performer, you need to have all that kind of, you know, any inkling of embarrassment or shyness taken out of you. It just needs to be completely natural. It sounds like there's a lot of music and stuff in your house when, you know, when you were growing up. Oh, absolutely. I, I played piano, then... Uh... Fourth grade, I started uh, playing uh, French horn for nine years. We had to do all county, uh, all Eastern choir. I did marching band, orchestra, concert band, chorus, concert choir. I mean, you know, I did it all. The Westchester Youth Jazz Ensemble. So again, it was all about achievement uh, and also getting into college too. This would be good for your transcript. This would be really good for your record. And because uh, again, they were educators, so they knew what it took to get into good schools and, and to achieve. But also you can't do that if you're tone deaf. Right. They knew I was talented. Yes. Yes. Right. Are they performers themselves or are they, or are they more educators than performers? Or My dad has passed. Uh, my mother is still alive. She's 80. Both uh, met in college when they were in, in, uh, studying music. My mother was the a vocal uh, teacher and my dad was the instrumental teacher uh, at two different elementary schools here in Westchester. They both had their master's degrees. I, me and my brother, the ones, only ones that don't have our master's in, the, in our household. So we're, he went to Georgetown. He ended, uh, he ended up being an actor too. Master's in life. <laughs> yeah, but you, at the same time, you can also say that you're, 
I don't know how many others of your siblings or, or your family have, have had the chance and the opportunity and the invitation to go and perform at the Garrick, I suppose you could say. I can't wait to get back. But those are the opportunities when you're good and you have the door open for you and you have the freedom to be asked and go. Those are the opportunities that I cherish. It's not about money either. You can't live your life on what's the paycheck? I'm not going to go. It's who will I be able to work with? Uh, Josie Warwick was our director. Uh, Nika Burns is our producer, which we love from NIMAX. Josie did a spectacular job at uh, Dunmar Theater about five years ago with this production. And it was so, so well received that this was the big production that uh, the same, same producers and designers and choreographers that were with that particular production we're going we're gonna to do at the Garrick. I really hope that we, we open hopefully next year and, and do it because it was extraordinary. And I, I love the fact that theater is so accommodating and available for the West End. And, and you know, you, you go there as a, as a growing up so close to Broadway. Um, I, I knew what it was like to hop on a train, see a matinee and, and have a quick break and then go to an evening show and just get my fix. So uh, it's wonderful to see the, the reverence of theater there and how available it is. I was listening this morning, it was on the radio in England anyway, that, that there are a couple of theaters that, that are opening up, in, albeit in a very sort of strange COVID-centric kind of way, that are, that are opening up on a total uh, loss-making venture just to keep everything kind of somehow the wheels rolling because theater is going to be, it's probably something like restaurants or whatever, but we talk about your line of work. Theaters are one of the things that are really, the survival of this current situation that we're in is really kind of ominous as to what, you know, I mean, how you, you know, the rents, how you keep these things going, who the, the people, how you pay your product. You know, there's so many people involved in one single production of anything that how you keep your talent, who's going to pay them. And literally these theatres are now just have, have started to say, the ones that can have started saying, look, we're going to, we're going to open up. This is a loss-making situation, but we, we have to do it just to try and keep the damn thing going because otherwise yeah. it's not going to be theatre. I mean, you know, you've got, because once it's gone, I mean, you can't, once everyone disperses, it's gone. It's like at a Garrick at the moment, are they trying to sort of keep the, uh, what's their view on, on the situation? Are they going to be able to keep it going or... Well, we were a big, sexy production. And I know that, uh, so Nika Burns, who is uh, one of the the owners of NIMAX Theater, I think she is actually opening Jamie, which is a smaller show. And I think they're doing it socially distanced. But ours is a huge, sexy production that has a lot of people on stage and a lot of people behind stage. And it costs a lot of money. And it's a really, I don't want to say a vanity project for Nika, but she is completely behind it. So I don't think we will come back unless we have full audience to be able to pay everybody. So it just wouldn't work any other way. But um, I, I think she's determined to at least open it. We are one week away from opening. Uh, we were in previews for two weeks. We had great yeah. audiences. So I, I'm sure that she is going to open it. I don't know for how long the run will be, but it'll, it'll open. And uh, we'll get a chance to show what an amazing production we started. What is it about the, the Broadway specifically that, that you love, that, that really drives you? I mean, you talk about Broadway a lot. I know that it's something that you're very excited about and you know, it's, it's not something that everyone can do. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know that I have a friend of mine, Hugh Jackman, who you may have worked with or not, yeah. but you know, he's another lover of Broadway. And you know, it's, it's, it's not for all actors. What's, what is it for you? Well, you said it. It's not that everyone can do. Yeah. Not everybody can do it. And it's so revealing 
You either have star presence or not. You either can dance or you can't. You either can sing or you can't. There are, yes, there are tricks and, and beautiful lighting and costumes and great dancers that can dance around you. But if you don't have that star appeal on Broadway in front of people live uh, and can't get them excited or interested, then it's very revealing. And that's what I love about some people that have tried to make the transition from movies or television to Broadway and are complete failure because they don't have that extra thing. So that's what I love. It's about getting out there and feeling comfortable and also changing it every night. The audience informs your performance. The, the rest of your castmates informs what you're going to see every night. So it's never the same show. And uh, that's what's exciting about it. It's like, you know, I sing my own music and I go out with my band and you never know what's going to happen and who's going to be out there. And if it's dull and people aren't getting the material and I can switch it up and say, okay, let's do some more R&B right now. And we got to get them back into the mood. So it's that live kind of kinetic energy that you just can't get when you have a, a well, I guess you, it's a different kind of feeling. If I'm on television or behind a lens and I can do a scene and make the sound guy cry, then again, I've said, okay, chick, I've done it. I've done what I've meant to do. So it's all about moving people, I think. That's the bottom line. You're not making the sound guy cry because suddenly you're going, right, let's step it up. Let's do some R&B. Bang, let's just change here. And the guy's trying to keep up. He's crying, emotionally crying as opposed to yes. in <laughs> What is it about the fact that then, you know, a lot of Broadway performers can't transition the other way? They can't, it's not, I mean, that seems to be almost as hard as, as sort of get Broadway performers to, to be sort of actors without singing and dancing. It's almost like if you've seen Spinal Tap, you, you put it up to 11. So a lot of theater people are used to using their entire body and projecting to the back of the house. And everything is large and extended. And when they get in front of a small little uh, lens, they have to be able to condense all that and I say you have to read it through your eyes. You really have to tell the story through your eyes when you're acting in front of behind the lens. On stage, you're using your entire body and it doesn't work. It's too much when the lens is that small. So you have to make that adjustment. And if you can't do it, that's when you see it being really kind of uncomfortable. Interesting. It's actually very similar to uh, the modeling industry where if you're on a runway, you're, you, you know, you're working your whole body and you've got your, everyone's looking at you from all angles and every aspect of it counts. And obviously your eyes, although it's important to feel something, people can hardly see your eyes because of the lighting. But if you're shooting them or photographing them, you even say the smallest movement, the smallest glimmer flicker of your eye can change the entire story. And don't forget if a photographer, if they're shooting a scene for a movie or for a you know, commercial, if they're in on your face, if you so much as lean on one leg, you put your face out of camera, you know, your chin dips out of frame. I mean, it's right. the smallest moments. So very interesting. That's a very good analogy. I had never really thought about it like that. I've always wondered. I, I, I'm one of those people, Vanessa, though, who, who gets almost embarrassed sometimes when I go to Broadway productions. You know, I, I would, I, I sort of, not that I cringe, because they're not always, because some people are brilliant, and I love Hugh, and I love certain act characters, but it is sometimes when things are so massive and so big that I get, like, embarrassed, like, oh, my goodness, is that with me? I, you know, I sort of I get all kind of like, oh, my goodness, how can they do that? How can they right. go through that? Uh, do you still get stage fright at all? Do you still get any of that? 
Sure. I mean, I get stage fright when uh, it's new and fresh. You've never done a run through before. Like, can I remember our lines? Where am I supposed to enter? Okay. Uh, what, what is the dance step? How do I end this? So yeah, I, it's more, you get stage fright when you don't know what you're doing and, and not quite as prepared. And also when there's somebody in the, in the house that you want to impress. And sometimes cast like that, like if they go, President Obama's out there, everyone's like, oh my God. And they either go crazy or they just lose their mind and, you know, or Barbara Streisand. So that kind of affects your performance as well. I like to find out once I'm done and then they come backstage and go, oh, Elaine Stritch walked five flights upstairs to said I was terrific. That was, you know, a nice little bonus that I wasn't expecting. 100%. Yeah. Just sort of thinking about your career for a second here, you know, you, you know you've you obviously, we, we've talked about a little bit about Miss America. You were the first African-American to win Miss America. You know, you look at the world right now and we've been dealing with coronavirus and we've been, and obviously Black Lives Matter have risen to the top. And, you know, there's been protests all around the world. It's not just an American phenomenon. You, you were groundbreaking at that moment and in, in, in winning Miss America then, What's changed? What hasn't changed, in your opinion? That's a scary thing. You know, I was born in 63. Kennedy was killed. A few years later, Martin Luther King was assassinated. That was the middle of the civil rights era. And I think back, wow, my parents were so brave to start a family in that tumultuous time. Then when I started having kids, 87, 89, and then early 90s, Rodney King happened. Uh, Riots were happening in L.A., Malibu was on fire. I said, I'm getting the hell out of here and I'm raising my kids here in Westchester that I can have great public schools and my parents will be close by and kind of live in a bubble. And now that my kids are my age that I was when I started having kids, it's like deja vu with upheaval and racial tension and rioting and the fear. Um, So obviously it's cyclical. And now you can't run away. I mean, Rodney King was an example of one person that was the catalyst for change. But George Floyd, and there are so many names that we have videos. And and especially in COVID, it seemed like every feed you got every morning, it was like somebody else was being beaten or killed. But in COVID, it seemed like every day I woke up and turned on my Instagram and somebody was being murdered. So certainly it is time for change. Certainly uh, there are tremendous strides that are being made in terms of reform and and voting. And it's a catalyst for people actually making legislative change, which is fantastic. But it's, it's also heartbreaking because you think you made so many strides in the 60s and your kids are going to grow up in a, in a beautiful world, you know, according to Martin Luther King. And then it comes right back down to the same kind of civil unrest that I saw in my parents' lifetime and, and my lifetime and now my children. But, and I, I know this word has been overused, but people are woke. You either, uh, you, you can't deny what's happening globally. Uh, and it's really uh, encouraging to see so many people of so many different colors being active and speaking out and wanting to make change. And that's the best thing that's come out of the isolation that we've had uh, during this COVID crisis. It's really made people aware. They haven't been able to run away from the reality of, of what's happened and how divisive 
these times have been in the past few years. Do you, th- do you really think that communication uh, and, and there's, you know, you mentioned that you know, people all over the world are, are, have reacted and they have, and that is fantastic. And do you think that's really going to be the big changer? Because, you know, obviously, historically, as you mentioned, I mean, many people have died, many mm-hmm. people have, have, have protested, you know, there have been extraordinary leaders. We've, we've had President Barack Obama, uh, who we thought was going to be a game changer, and in many ways he was uh, for many, but we sort of you know, if you like, almost flipped the switch back, you know, and it, it just seems to me that, you know, we do you know one step forward, two steps back so often. Do you think that this is really going to be a change? And if so, why? I'm just curious. I mean, not that you have the answers to all these things, but from your perspective, you know, you've, you've lived a long life and you have been in this groundbreaking situation. What do you see? It's, it's standards and practices and, and legislation. So uh, in the 60s, when my parents were going through the civil rights, they got the right to vote. And that was Definitely through legislation. Uh, right now, I got a call from Audrey McDonald, who was uh, who's a six-time Tony a winner, and a group of us started a, a coalition called Black Theatre United. And between us and what we've been able to do with town halls and um, awareness on the census and, and fair voting, we've been able to make change. We actually see we've had summits that have had nationwide theaters that have come and talked about real reform, real change, real hiring. And we have seen these theaters across the country not only hire more talent, which is is great, and more Black programming is great, but we want to see more management that are people of color. We want to see more staff that are people of color, more producers, more directors. And we've seen those changes. So every week we get kind of an update on what's actually happening. Talk is one thing which is fantastic and everyone's being able to, you know, spill their guts and talk about their pain and and what they'd like to see. But we are seeing a change in terms of actual dollars going to where theaters are talking about uh, communities, giving back to the community, mentorships, and bringing more people into a world that's inclusive. Even the Oscars just recently said, Every production will have at least one person of color, whether it's a sound designer, production designer, director, producer, that's real change. Given your position as, you know, as a performer and given your kind of profile and your status, you were saying you get called currently with the situation that's going on with the Black Lives Matter and stuff, you've been called up. Have people tried to bring you in as a sort of spokesperson for, you know, as a, trying to make you kind of an ambassador for this movement? Or do you do your own thing? It, it, depends, on, it depends on what it is and, and how passionate I feel. And again, as an artist, I can sing a song. Uh, I'm about to record when I finish with uh, you guys. I'm going to record a song that came to me called Say Their Names. And it's about saying their names and stand up and rise and honor them and make a change in the world. So that came to me and I'm making a statement through my art. So I think it happens more through my art than me actually being really active in a political action, you know, campaign. You're doing your own thing right away. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to, to be able to do something like that too. Is this a song that you wrote yourself? No, this is a song that one of my dear friends who wrote Say the Best for Last came to me, Phil Galston, and he said, listen, and I'm also a visiting professor at NYU, and he runs the Steinhardt School, which is for songwriting. So Phil called and said, listen, one of my professors wrote this music. I wrote the lyrics. I think it'd be fantastic for you and Black Theatre United if you wanted to listen to it. 
And I said, absolutely perfect. And I sent it to everybody who's part of our group. So we've got all these black Broadway stars singing this amazing song. And we hope to, uh, you know, shoot a video and, and have it out there as, as a single sometime soon. Fantastic. Amazing. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Music is just so powerful. There's something about it touches people in ways that, you know, you, you just, I, you know, when I listen to certain music and it takes you back to certain times in your life, your first kiss, your first drink, your first dance, or just parts, you know, vacations, moments, history, um, you know, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, historically, music has been so impactful. What is it about certain of your songs? I mean, Tom and I, when we were talking about the fact we were having you on as a guest, he was humming, save the best to last, I think. And he was like, I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> you know? So well, are we I, about to have that now? <laughs> well, that's the great thing about what has kept my longevity as a singer is the melody. When people, what's that song? You know, they remember the music. And again, it makes that it was a prom song. It was the wedding song. It was an anniversary song. And do you love singing those songs? Do you still love singing them? I always wonder when you see some great performer, you know, I mean, I saw Aerosmith the other day and they, they, they well, just before, not the other day, it was last year, but, but it was one of those things where they, all these great hits, I loved them. I was, yeah, but I'm, then I thought to myself, oh my God, okay, he's on this huge concert tour and all yeah. these different dates and you're going to sing the same songs. You've been singing them for 20 odd years. <laughs> How do you cope? I mean, what do you do? Again, it's the reaction of the audience when they sing along, when all of a sudden all their all their cameras come out to record, then you know, okay. That usually happens with uh, Save the Best for Last and Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas, which is, oh. you know, people have done it for their dance recitals and, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and again, it touches a specific point in their life where they remember seeing the movie and listening to the radio and it, it makes that connection that you're always going to be part of their lives. You know, when we hung out that time, and I, I, I was, we had some pictures that we shot of each other while we were out and about, and I remember showing sounds, my daughter. This sounds so, this sounds, sorry. Can you just be more specific <laughs> about where you were and what you were doing? <laughs> if, so no, 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 I like this. it just where I left it, actually. But that's when I were hanging out, partying, took some pictures when we were out and about. And um, anyway, to make it more PC, I actually showed my daughter the photographs uh, and, you know, and I was describing you and she was like, oh, it's Pocahontas. Ah. And to you, as far as she's concerned, you were Pocahontas, not someone else, which in her head. And it was funny because I was even said to my, I said to my wife, oh, was she the voice of all of Pocahontas? And I, because all I can think of is you, because I know that you, you sung the songs, but do you get typecast sometimes? Do people start to assume that you are these characters because you play them? Is that something that you've been through? The most has been Ugly Betty playing Wilhelmina Slater, who was a, a royal bitch and very icy and conniving, but a great sense of humor. And uh, so if there is one role that kind of follows me, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious that's so funny because that's I think specifically more so though in Europe maybe and in and in uh, you know because I know in the UK people know you for that role you know that's <laughs> housewives ugly Betty but yes. and because they don't know necessarily your American history of Miss America and all the rest of the and that's right. kind of refreshing in a way except of course when it becomes the bitch role in which case you're like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> but you <laughs> know the writing the writing was delicious and I loved every bit of it do you miss that? Are you looking for more roles like that? Would that be something that you'd love to do? I mean, you talk about Broadway. I mean, you, I guess you can do it all, but can you? At this point, there are so many opportunities for streaming that it's not just before it was, 
getting a series on NBC, CBS, or ABC. That was kind of it. You were lucky to get, you know, seven years as like a grand slam, but, you know, get on, get picked up for years, you know, for a, a run. And you were hoping now between Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, there's so many opportunities to do really good work. And you do 13 at a time or even eight or six, but the quality is fantastic. The opportunities to shoot all over the world are great. So I, I'm looking forward to whatever the best situation is for me and who I'm going to be working with. So I think I, I can't wait to explore that. And I would love to work in the UK. I met so many people that I loved and admired and were inspired by. And I love all the products that are coming out in terms of, of television. Is it harder you know, certainly as you, you know, um, you know, I guess I don't know this, what's the nicest way of saying it, but it's happening to us all. But as we age, exactly. <laughs> as we age, you know, in this world of Hollywood and, and looks and, and youth and all the rest of it, is it different? Is it harder? Is it easier? Are you finding it more niche? Uh, you know, what, how does one even get cast for certain roles? What is this whole way it works? Well, I think, I mean, for instance, I, I watched Sex Education, which I absolutely love, which is shoot, shot over the UK. And Gillian Anderson plays a mother who, you know, is, is struggling with her sexuality. And is she past her prime? Does she still feel like she's sexy or not? But she plays a, a professional who's got a, a child in, in, in high school and dealing with all that. It's really well written, really well shot. And she's a woman of a certain age. So uh, as long as you can find really interesting parts, uh, and again, I'm a mom of four. That's my reality. It shouldn't be an issue. I mean, there are so many, sorry to butt in, but, you know, it, the obvious thing is, again, going back to the show that you're supposed to be doing in a garret, how many 20-year-olds are there out there? How many 20-year-old drama and performing arts students are there out there who would literally cut off their left hand to get a chance to star on the stage in the West End of London. So that kind of answers the question, doesn't it? I mean, it's clearly not having too much of a, the age issue. It certainly doesn't seem to be slowing or preventing you from, from working and doing what you do best, which is performing arts. I mean, it doesn't, it, you know, it, it seems to me that you're doing the roles that you want to be doing. Is that dumb, but I just, I guess my point is rather that, that you know, nonetheless, in a way, Hollywood is not very, or not necessarily has to be Hollywood, but the, the whole entertainment industry hasn't historically been kind to people, especially women, when they, as they grow older. You know, so it's one of those things where roles have decreased. And I'm curious, have, have that's changed or whether, because you know, there aren't just a plethora of roles for older women. And it always seems that even when you watch any show, women are younger and, and what have you. Is that changing? I mean, it's already hard enough, I guess, in, in general, but um, is that changing or not? I think it's a matter of the strongest roles are usually the best ones that are for, like Maggie Smith, you know, Downton Abbey. I can probably name more actresses over the age of 70 than I can under the age of 40. And, and, I'm, and I'm 48. That says a lot about you, Tom. <laughs> refined taste, Nigel. Refined taste. <laughs> refined right. taste, no doubt about it. 100%. Oh, my goodness. So, Vanessa, what is, what is it, other than the Garrick, so that's your, your next move for next year. But what this year, this current year, within this pandemic, what are you doing? What, what, is, what is life like for you right now? I authored a children's book called Bubble Kisses, which came out uh, a couple months ago. And within the book, there is a CD. So um, you can 
put the CD or download the music. No one has a CD player anymore, but uh, uh, download the music and, and sing along with your child. And uh, that was perfect timing because I had, uh, had been working on it for a few years and it came out at the perfect time where everyone's at home reading to their children. What's Bubble Kisses about? It's a, a little girl who's got a, a goldfish named Sal and she brings her goldfish to show and tell in school. But when she comes home and goes to sleep, she turns into a mermaid with Sal, her goldfish, and they go on little adventures under the sea. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of escapism and beautifully done. The illustrators, Tara Nicole Whitaker, did an amazing job. And it's all mermaids of all different shades of skin and hair textures. So it's perfectly on trend for being inclusive right now. That came out a couple months ago. I'm recording, uh, which I told you about, Say Their Names. I just finished doing a Christmas concert that we did socially distanced in D.C. That'll be on PBS for Christmas. And it's the Ella Fitzgerald Swingin' Christmas album that you did in 1960. And we recreated that music. So that we just did. And then I'm going to be at the Kennedy Center in two weeks with Renee Fleming, the amazing soprano. And we're doing a concert together, kind of addressing what's happening now. There's not going to be anyone in the seats. They're going to shoot it with us on stage with the opera house behind us empty. And there will be a small invited uh, guest in front of us on the stage. And we're just going to talk about being back and, and saying beautiful stuff about being a mother and the times that we live in and, and hope for the future. Amazing, amazing. And then, of course, we hopefully have you performing in London at the Garrick, which we will keep our fingers crossed, and, and no doubt Tom will be front row. I don't think I've ever met such an undiva-like diva <laughs> in my life. I mean, ever, ever come across anyone who should be the consummate diva, who you do not behave like one. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm a diva, but I, I play one on TV. So uh, when you do come to see me at the Garrick, you'll have to come backstage, and I have a full bar backstage, so we'll have to have a drink if they have some amazing gin. I love to. But before you go, we have something called Last Orders on Shaken and Stirred, which is a little kind of a rapid fire question. Are you, are you game? Yes. That's wonderful. Very, very quickly, before we let you go. All right, Vanessa, Last Orders. What's the last thing you think when you step on stage? Am I buttoned up? Is anything, any underwear showing? <laughs> underwear showing. Okay, that's rather interesting. Um, in, the, in the movie of your life, who would you hope to play you? There's a brilliant young musical theater actress named Solea Pfeiffer, who not only is she amazing, but she had the same teacher that I did in college, Brent Wagner, who just recently retired. Wow. So she could really perform just like you. And, and uh, it's a very interesting concept to have the same trainer as well. Like, I don't even know what to think about that. <laughs> what would you do if you, knew, if you knew you could not fail? Maybe fly a plane. Interesting. Okay. Fly a plane. Fly. If you couldn't fail, if you couldn't crash it, I guess you wouldn't mind yeah. flying a plane. Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I like that. I like that. I'll take that. That's good. Name one thing you lust after. Sexy cars. And you know that because we went to an amazing garage together. But I did. Beautiful... Actually, just then you just pointed at me and I, I, for a moment, I, my heart jumped uh, um, and skipped a beat. But uh, sorry, then you went on about cars. Anyway, yes. Sexy cars. I get it. I get it. And they, yes. Beautiful cars. I like a beautiful car too. So does Tom. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, well, why haven't you got one? I know. I used to have one. <laughs> Dakin or Sturd? I would say Sturd. Sturd. And you have stirred mm -hmm. us all 
on Shaken and Stirred. Vanessa Williams, thank you so, so much. It's been such a pleasure, Vanessa, to have you on. Good luck with everything you've got going on. And I hope to see you and have a drink with you in person sooner rather than later. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya. See ya.